Welcome to Contact High. Today's Shabbat replay is from our May 12th Friday night Shabbat service. The day before, Rabbi Stephen and Rabbi Lizzie were honored to attend Mayor-elect Johnson's interfaith breakfast with hundreds of faith leaders from around Chicago. In his sermon, Rabbi Stephen reflected on this moment of optimism and cooperation and challenged us to treat everyone in this city as not only neighbors, but kin loved ones so dear to us that we cannot help but stand with them in their struggles. Take it away, Rabbi. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbos. <clears throat> so yesterday, uh, Rabbi Lizzie and I had the opportunity to attend an interfaith breakfast for Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Company was great. Food was okay. <laughs> it was mostly just uh, was a little sour because the coffee never made it to my table. <laughs> so as I was watching it circle the room, but I'm like, I'm just like willing it in my direction. Um, but I was too tired to really exert my will because I had no coffee. So the event brought together faith leaders from across the city to connect and to celebrate and to set the stage for collaboration with the new administration and each other. And I was sat between a Lutheran minister on one side and an African Methodist Episcopal radio host on the other uh, at a table that had a Presbyterian pastor and a Catholic priest and a Reformed rabbi and two church leaders of an evangelical mission with locations like in various places across the South and West Side. And it was an amazing moment of seeing the breadth of faith traditions in Chicago and also recognizing in that same moment as one of the few white and Jewish and queer people in the room that the Chicago that we usually see is only a slice of the pie, or I guess the, the deep dish pizza, as it were. That was a good, that was a good one. I like that one. Thank you. <laughs> So between prayers offered by different faith leaders for his future success, Johnson outlined his vision for the city, highlighting the potential he saw in Chicago, both for the well-being of its residents and as a model for creating a more just and more equitable society for all of America. And Johnson concluded, and I quote, no one should be so poor that they cannot live in one of the richest cities in the richest country in the richest moment in human history. This is a statement that both, right, that's, that's deserving of, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Not my words, his, but true nonetheless. This is a statement that both speaks to the American dream, and as some of the other speakers that morning noted, is a teaching and a challenge found in every faith tradition. The Reverend Dr. Marilyn Pagan Banks, the leader of San Lucas United Church of Christ and the executive director of A Just Harvest, probably said it best that morning. The health of a society should always be judged on how we treat our most vulnerable, our most disadvantaged. 
the Torah recognizes that an economic system that allows for the individual accrual of wealth lacking course correction has the potential to create both prosperity and poverty. The Torah also says that the tolerance of the latter, the tolerance of poverty, is anathema to our tradition. The vision of a just society outlined in our sacred text demands the eradication of poverty through the creation of welfare systems designed to equip the poor with sustainable means of improving their lives. This week, we read in the final chapters of the book of Leviticus, if your kin, being in dire straits, comes under your largesse, even if one is tempted to consider them like a stranger, someone who you do not have the responsibility to care for, let them live with you. Provide them resources with no interest. Return property that was taken from them. Ensure they are fed and sheltered. This welfare system proposed by the Torah over 2,500 years ago is profoundly and perhaps frustratingly self-evident. To ensure that those facing poverty have the ability to meet their basic needs and share in the riches of society is a task that, as Johnson noted in his speech, we have consistently failed to accomplish. In our city alone, over 65,000 people are currently struggling with homelessness. Over one quarter of renters in the city pay over half of their paycheck just to make rent. And on any given winter night, at least 1,500 people on average are forced to sleep outside in the cold. And many of them do not make it. This is not simply an economic problem. This is a moral crisis. So in this moment, I want to think less about what we are supposed to do, although I encourage you to talk to our social justice leaders to learn more about how they can be part of the policy changes that need to happen with this new administration, and more about whom we are supposed to do these things for. When your kin, being in dire straits, comes under your largesse, even if one is tempted to consider them a stranger, let them live with you. The key words in this passage are ach, kin, and ger, stranger. Who do we think of as our kin, and who do we see as a stranger. Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anche Emmet Synagogue, just kind of a mile that way, who represented the Jewish community on stage yesterday, opened his invocation with Psalm 133, Hine Matov Umanaim, Shevet Achim Gamyachad, commonly translated as how good it is for brethren to dwell in unity. And it was good to be gathered in that space with people from all over the city, unified in our hope for and our commitment to a better tomorrow. Yet Rabbi Siegel also challenged us to reflect on how we think of the word achim, brethren, siblings, kin. That very same word invoked by Leviticus, your kin, your ach, being in dire straits. And so I want to ask each of you, In this city, who do we see as our neighbor? And perhaps more importantly, who do we see as a stranger? 
something I really love about Chicago, and I say this as a, as a non-native Chicagoan, is the distinctiveness and pride found in our neighborhoods. I'm a resident of Boys Town, and I love living in a neighborhood that is just so unapologetically gay. <laughs> I mean, we have rainbow street signs, we have rainbow crosswalks, we have rainbow banners everywhere, and I love seeing people I know on the street, or at the grocery store, at the gym, and I love the safety that community provides to live openly as both a queer person and a Jew. Yet my story in Chicago actually began on the South Side as a graduate student in Hyde Park, which, and it's very important to acknowledge this, is whiter and more affluent than its surrounding neighborhoods. The legacy of racially restrictive covenants supported actually by the University of Chicago only about 70, 80 years ago. When I moved up to Lakeview, it shocked me to learn that the vast majority of my white neighbors had never ventured south of the South Loop. Our neighborhoods are distinct, but they are also divided in color and in language, in distribution of wealth, in access to resources, in connection to public transportation, and none of this is by happenstance. Our city bears the scars of redlining and racially motivated disinvestment. There are invisible lines that define who we think of as our neighbor, as our kin, and who we consider a stranger. And this perception has very real consequences. Some of you might remember in 2013 when then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel announced that to offset a $1 billion... (laughs) 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 To offset a $1 billion deficit in the city budget, his administration would close public schools that had been determined to be, quote, underperforming and under-resourced. There is a painful irony in those two words. Because, of course, schools that were under-resourced were also underperforming. Initially, 330 schools were slated to close. Eventually, that list was whittled down to 54. And of those 54 schools, 88% of the affected students were black, and 71% had mostly black teachers. And while, yes, a very, very small minority of students were able to be relocated to better performing schools, the majority found themselves at institutions that were already fighting to support their current students as the realities of segregation and inequality in this city have kept under-resourced schools geographically bounded, primarily on the west and south sides. And so while the city saved money, our students and teachers continued to struggle. As someone who lived in the city at the time, I'm going to guess that that if, like me, you lived on the north side in that moment, those changes didn't feel like much. Yet for these students and parents and teachers and administrators, their lives and their lifelines had been upended. And I want you to imagine, if this did not happen in your neighborhood, what it would be like to have that happen in your neighborhood. I think about Nettlehorst Elementary, If you know it, you know the fence with the little rainbow tassels on it. And what that would be like if that was suddenly shuttered. If that community center with its farmer's market every Saturday was gone. We would be indignant. We wouldn't be able to stop talking about it. I know that I would think of it every single day because that school lies between 
where I go to the gym, where I go shopping, where I get my coffee and my home. And I would look up at those darkened windows of what was once a bustling center of my community and wonder what happened and why it happened and if it should have happened. But those school closures, as with so many of the economic ills that plague our city, affected people who live across one of the invisible lines that divide our city. And so their pain and their suffering and their anger often don't feel like our problem. And so here is our challenge. The Torah gives us a blueprint for creating a just society, yet justice is expressed through who we think of as our kin. Who do we feel responsible for? Who would we invite into our homes to live with us? Who would we share our resources with with no expectation of recompense? What would it look like to consider all Chicagoans, north and south and west, and yes, as I learned yesterday, there is an east side, as our neighbors? And not just like a theoretical sense of neighborliness, but in an immediate like knock on your door and ask for a cup of sugar. Of course, you are invited to my barbecue tomorrow. Do you mind checking on my cat or my plants while I'm gone kind of sense of neighborliness? While the weather might be a bit gloomy outside, I do believe that summer is around the corner. And the summer months give us an opportunity to put this radical reframing into practice particularly as we flock to our public parks and beaches and the lines between our neighborhoods become just a little blurrier and a little more permeable. But I'm going to challenge all of us to go a bit further, to break down those barriers beyond just our normally shared spaces. Go get dinner or brunch in a neighborhood that you usually don't go to. Find out where you can shop local or eat local or drink local. Connect to folks at Mishkan about where they live, about their favorite spots around the city. Share what you find with your friends. Share it on social media. But more importantly, talk to the people at the table next to you. Get to know the shopkeeper. Ask how long the bartender or the barista or the waiter has been working there, where they grew up, and what they love most about where they live. Don't be a tourist be a neighbor. Choose to see in the place of a stranger, one of our own, our fellow Chicagoans, our kin. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening. <laughs>